0: Hi, this is Matt and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is part one of a really special two-part episode that I've been putting together over the past few months. Um, this year we've done a lot of talking about bluegrass guitar legends. We started off with the Doc Watson specials um, in March to celebrate Doc's 100th birthday. And then we followed that up in April with the 40th anniversary of the Church Street Blues uh, album of Tony Rice's. And go and check those out if you haven't heard them because there's hours and hours of great stuff in there. But through those conversations, especially the Tony one... I ended up talking to people about Clarence White and I realised not only is this the 100th anniversary of Doc's birthday this year and the 40th anniversary of Church Street Blues, it's also 50 years since Clarence died. And I wanted to use that as an excuse to celebrate Clarence, talk to some people who knew him, some people who played with him, some people who were inspired by him. And so that is what you are going to listen to the first part of today. Um, I've Done lots of interviews for this, and it's going to be two parts. The first part is going to be a couple of people who knew Clarence and spent some time with him in the last year or so of his life. Um, first up, we've got David Greer, who met Clarence as a kid um, and spent some time with him, and just yeah, uh, really passionate about Clarence's playing and just about Clarence as a human being and a fascinating conversation and just a joy to get to talk to David about Clarence. And I learned a huge amount, and I think. You will enjoy it. And the second part is Alan Mundy, banjo player who played with Kentucky Colonels and Clarence and that final, those Fosmos final gigs, um, particularly on the Live in Sweden record that uh, I'm sure we all know and love. Um, also fascinating, these two are pretty much full-length interviews. Um, so it's just the two of them in this episode. And then part two will follow, and that's going to be with some more people, including Michael Daves and Russ Barenberg. Um, and will be more on that next week. But this is going to be... David Greer and Alan Mundy talking about Clarence White and I hope you enjoy this because they were a joy to have these two conversations with two incredible musicians who are generous with their time, generous with their experiences and full of insight and sort of you know it's yeah this was this was special to do and I hope you enjoy it. So first up we're going to hear from David Greer. My first guest on this tribute to Clarence is David Greer and when I started like doing some reading about Clarence and talk to people about Clarence, David's name come up straight away for obvious reasons. David um, is influenced by and loves Clarence, but also David met Clarence when he was a kid. And I'd love to start sort of there, if that's all right, David, sort of how you got to know Clarence when you were a kid.
1: Well, my father was a musician. He played the banjo. He played with Bill Monroe for two years and he played locally, you know, around Maryland, DC and Baltimore when he, wasn't playing with Bill. So he had a lot of musician friends. And the Kentucky Colonels came to the East Coast and Dad had met met them. You know, the Kentucky Colonels being uh, Roland and Clarence. and I don't know who all was with them at that time. But uh, those two for sure. And eventually, at, at some point, he invited them over to the house. And they had a jam session in the basement of our house, of Dad's house. I don't know. And um, they're playing songs they know and having fun, I guess. I don't know. I was, anywhere they're playing, Dad was playing this tape. He had recorded it, you know. Not fancy, just something for him to listen to, you know. And there's He played it one night, one day, afternoon. <laughs> Sometime <laughs> in the living room at our house, he just played the tape because he had it and I guess hadn't heard it in a while. And there's this baby screaming like just murder. And uh I said, God, Dad, who's that kid screaming? He said, That's you. I said, Oh, well, sorry, didn't know. I mean, a little baby. I must have been, you know, I don't remember the date, but I was little and I don't remember that. But uh, that might have been the first time I'd met him, you know, or that he saw me or I saw him. But And then at my house, my dad's house, my house growing up, um, dad had three people that were his main influences. I'm sure he had others, but it was Bill Monroe, Earl Scruggs, and Clarence White. So... Dad would play live tapes and records of all those people and other folks, but those were what I heard the most of. And uh, so I was tuned in to Clarence, and I had met Roland growing up several times. If he ever came near, he'd come to the house and we'd pick some, or if we went on vacation in Nashville, Roland and I would pick, and he was always, Roland was cool. But, uh, so that's where I'd heard of Clarence, and the records were amazing. I mean, the Colonels had unique arrangements or more modern arrangements of songs that all these old guys did, (laughs) you know. To me, being, you know, 12 or something, or 10, they were old guys, and, um, it seems like Bill Monroe was always old <laughs> to me, which you know he wasn't. but to me seemingly, anyway, I I knew Clarence's music and I he didn't sound like anybody else. He was one of them people that as soon as you heard it, it's like, oh my God, that's Clarence. Just his timing, the syncopation, the tone, the everything, his voice. Was so unique. And back there, everybody sounded different. I mean, Don Reno sounded different than George Shuffler, who sounded different than Doc and Dan Crary and sounded different than Tony Rice. They all, Norman Blake was, they had their own way. And Clarence was just like that. He had his own way, but it was so, anyway. The first I remember meeting him, I finally answered your question, I'm so <laughs> sorry, Is uh, was it Indian Springs, Maryland? There was a festival there, I reckon 73, is that right? I think so, 73, 1973, and the Colonels played there, and uh, that's the first I was old enough to remember having met him there's pictures of me sitting on the side of the stage well they ain't pictures of me they're pictures of them <laughs> but in the picture I'm sitting on the side of the stage just listening it's cool and uh Clarence was cool I, I got to meet him he let me play I didn't play his guitar then but later like a few weeks later there was this Warner Brothers put together a, a tour of all their art, not all, but some of their artists that were coming out with new records soon. Graham Parsons was there, Emmylou Harris. Tony Rice was there. Um, Ro- the Country Gazette was there, which is who Roland was playing with, with Alan Mundy. Um, and Clarence was there. And that's when I first got to play Clarence's guitar. See, I was used to playing dad's nineteen fifty-five D eighteen, Martin D eighteen. The action was way high, it's like a Dobro. And heavy gauge strings like black diamonds or Mapes or something mm-hmm. archaic like that. And um I played Clarence's guitar and it played itself. You just like, oh man, this is so easy. Butter. And um Roland and I were playing in Roland's room at the hotel in Annapolis, which was half hour from my parents' house. And it had a connecting door on the inside. You know how some hotels. And then Clarence's room was there, and Clarence and my father were talking, and Roland and I were picking. And there were other people in and out. The door was open. There's a lot of Chris... Etheridge was there, bass player, just different people, um, that were on tour, they played in Annapolis and Philadelphia also, and I was at both those shows, dad went to both those shows that I went to with him, and um, 73, I wasn't quite 12 yet, I was 11, birthdays in September, so this is almost 12, but um, it was cool. It was the first time I ever played played <laughs> that I remember a professional's guitar because I was just a goober sitting in my bedroom playing, you know. And I always had a capo on because that action was high, and that would bring it down some so it was playable. Mm. But uh, Clarence's guitar, man, it was just a dream. And Clarence, well, had heard that Roland and I were playing, and he heard that. And he told dad, he says, look, he's got to have one of those guitars. And it's made by this guy named Mark Whitebook out there in California. And if you can't afford it, I'll buy it and you can pay me back. And dad says, well, if you think it's that important, I'll just go ahead and buy it. And uh, so that's how I got a Whitebook guitar. Um, Dad called him up, ordered it, ordered one. I want one like Clarence's. Except my name is cool. I got abalone all around the outside of it, and all around the headstock, and uh, it's way too ornate. I don't like that part. But
0: I was a kid. And is it? So and I think I read somewhere that that white book of Clarences had a cedar top rather than a spruce top. Is that right?
1: I believe so. Mine too. Yeah, yeah I think they all did. I'm not certain. I can't speak of. I don't know all his guitars. But the ones I've seen, I've seen several, have been that way. And the way he connected the neck was different. It was more like a uh, classical guitar. The the way it connected to the body, which you don't see because fretboard covers it and the rest is inside, and you just don't see it. But... (laughs) I saw it. (laughs) Don't ask how. Not with my guitar, someone else's, but anyway.
0: There's something really cool about cedar top guitars, if you get a good one. They're just, there's, uh, you know, people say you want a spruce top guitar for bluegrass, but a good cedar top guitar is a beautiful thing.
1: It's different. It's a different little bit. Well, quite a bit. It's a little different sound. Um, It's more delicate. My guitar is more delicate. Clarence's is delicate. Um I grew up playing that guitar. Played it all the time as soon as I got it. I learned a lot on that guitar. A lot. From then, so I got it probably in 74 sometime. And uh yeah, about a year later, less than a year maybe. Anyway, played that up until I was I don't know, 19. And I started playing electric guitar. So, and I tell you, because of Clarence, come on, Dad. Clarence played. <laughs> all right. <laughs>
0: so, and you were sort of saying one. earlier on, um, like about his style, and it's really interesting this idea that people then all had a different style. Because I came to Bluegrass sort of post the 80s, where Bluegrass guitar, like, sort of had developed into this post Tony Rice thing where most of it sounds the same. So it's hard exactly. for me to listen to, to Clarence, like, with ears pre-1980 or whatever. And, right. you know, everybody was their own thing at that stage, right?
1: Yeah. People didn't want to sound alike. It's like you don't want to kiss your girlfriend like her last boyfriend kissed her, right? So you don't want to take a solo like everybody else takes a solo. So... Everybody, and plus your own set of skills are different from somebody else's set of skills, and the way you learn is different, the way you approach something's different. Oh, God, I could rant on that for hours. (laughs) You wouldn't like it, but back then, it was much better. Bluegrass guitar was much better in a way. People are a lot more technical now, and they get around a lot faster than they ever did, and that's good. You know, their motor skills are finely tuned. Lots of bluegrass guitar players are very, 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 very capable, you know, as you can tell just by hearing and listening, but watching. But there was something back then that was more personal. They weren't trying to copy this or that, they had their own way of doing things, and Clarence's was way different from anyone else, completely different, his sense of timing and his sense of just accents and uh, anticipations, or just playing a note late on purpose, man, uh, just cool stuff, nothing was for granted, Tony Rice got that from Clarence, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. My father used to have a cassette tape of the Kentucky Colonels that I guess he made of all these gospel songs. And there were five or six, seven in a row different gospel songs. And each one was played out of a G position. It may have been A with the capo in the second or B flat or B or somewhere, but all you could tell Clarence was playing out of G shape. Each Song had its own particular G run Hmm. that you would have swore to God was handed down on some golden tablet. (laughs) It's like, how come he used that G run for that song? So you're trying, I'm trying to analyze it, you know, not knowing, always coming up with the wrong answer, but still trying to figure it out. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah, trying to get inside. Why would he do this? Why? How can I? gain this knowledge (laughs) you know sort of thing just like when you're staring at a cover of an album it's like and you're trying to figure out the guy's personality or whatever and you never met him right you're just trying to anything you can see you're trying to figure out same sort of thing and um god each each g-run was unique it wasn't just some of them were seemingly normal (laughs) but each, and he didn't do five of them in one song. One song had this particular G run all the way through it. Next song, this particular G run. It's a marvel. I don't know. I don't know how that sounds corny, but by God, you can't find that now. And Clarence didn't take it for granted. A lot of people, it seems, oh, here's where G run goes. Okay. Ding, ding. There you go. It's like, well, if that's all you got to say in that space of time. That's all you could think of. Clarence was, oh God, I don't know. I'm preaching to the choir, I bet, but that's something I missed that he did or that he showed me. You know, you don't have to, it's not a throwaway lick. Hmm.
2: You know,
1: it's don't do it without any thought. Don't do anything without any thought. Be purposeful. Mean what you say, say what you mean, sort of deal does that make sense?
0: It was yeah, damn cool, and that thing about sort of if you if you can hear a sound that you wanna like that's part of being uh an individual musician is you can hear something and your job is to then get it out so you can play it and you hear something slightly different and it's I think when I was a bit younger, I was more impressed by facility. And then, as you got a bit older, you'd listen to a guy like Russ Barenberg, for example, who would change a little inflection or one note or a little rhythm in a melody and just make it new. And as I listen to Clarence more and more, you hear him doing similar things, but like you can almost hear him playing with them, going, Well, what if I do this with it? Or what if I push it here? Or what if I just hold back on it? Or what if I, and that just constant playing with timing, constantly just moving around and seeing what it sounds like.
1: Listen to the intro to Blue and Lonesome on the Live in Sweden record. God almighty. Anybody else do that, it would be deemed busy or cluttering or in the way of the lead player, which was Roland, and getting in his way instead of putting down a nice, solid rhythm for them to solo over. Mm. Listen to Clarence, those runs. Nobody would ever ever think of that no way It's I don't know there's no way I know I would never think of that and if I did I would have gave up because it doesn't seem right but when Clarence does it it's the coolest thing in the world or listen to his rhythm on well anything but off that record if you listen to Blackberry Blossom very unique very unique um, Sally Gooden, unique. I don't. It seemed like if somebody else would do it, it'd be busy. And his was just perfect. It was so cool. Just, A, the thoughts of it, even having that thought, and B, the execution of it. And I like how he plays off Roland and Clarence together. Well, their vocals are cool, like brothers, Everly Brothers, you know, all them brother bands. But... The way they played together was cool. And Roland told me that when they started, Roland's the oldest and Clarence is the baby. Roland would strum the guitar and Clarence would do the
2: chords.
1: (laughs) Clarence was too small to reach. And then they'd switch after a while and Clarence would do the strings and Roland would do the chords. And that's how Clarence learned. That's how he began. It took the two of them. And um, they just played together.
0: It's cool. I guess something really cool about that, the idea that if you're just playing the right hand, you're not thinking about this. So you right. just like, all there is is the groove and how you get up and down. And
1: Yeah, exactly. His pick work. There's like multiple strings sometimes. It's not just strings, note, note, note. There's flurries, there's... The stuff he did with his hand later on towards the end, after the birds he's using his pick and fingers for stuff. Bluegrass folks didn't do that, I don't reckon. Maybe I'm wrong. But I wasn't aware of it. Let's say that. Um Innovator
0: Clearly an innovator. So like so going back to that, that sort of the point where Clarence was learning and was doing his first recordings and stuff, there were a few kind of templates for bluegrass rhythm guitar because you had like Lester flat, Del McCoury, Jimmy Martin, like some clearly, you know, excellent. Well,
1: Del wasn't much on this. Well, he was playing, but yeah. Um, who were the rhythm guitar? Jimmy Martin. He looked up to Jimmy Martin. His rhythm playing. He liked Earl Scruggs, but he had. Clarence, is, is who I'm speaking of had different influences Django Joe Maphis probably Merle Travis some I don't don't know all his influence but it was diverse he wasn't just never was gonna be just a bluegrass guy he was younger had different ideas that he brought to what he did.
0: He was really young when they did the um, Appalachian Swing Record, wasn't he? He could have only been teenager. in his teens at that point.
1: Yeah, teenager. You listen to that. It's amazing. Uh, I am a pilgrim. God almighty. Teenager. They're, his sense of timing. How do you even do that? I can't do that. I spent maybe five minutes on it one time. <laughs> yeah, I ain't got a whole lot of patience. But, um, no, I can't even wrap my mind around it. It's cool to hear. He can do it perfectly. It's amazing, but mm, it's so cool. Teenager.
0: Yeah, I talked to Wyatt Rice for the thing I did about Church Street Blues recently, and he was 17 when they recorded that. And you think, how is your rhythm, like, it's sort of superhuman to have ears and rhythm and just the confidence in what you hear at that age to yeah. play like that. So it's, it's astounding. Isn't
1: yeah, it? Wyatt did you, did... told me. Tony'd be practicing in the bedroom, and Wyatt be sitting in the hall, <laughs> listening to it, and then go back to his room. Tony said, "Play your own stuff." <laughs> Tony yell at him, "Don't be playing what I'm doing." <laughs> Wyatt always listening through the door. It's pretty funny.
0: I think I think it was you that said to me when we chatted about doing this um, originally that Wyatt's the only person you can sort of comes close to being able to do the Clarence sound.
1: All that weird timing stuff. Wyatt can do it. Yeah, I'm talking about the lead work.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, but it's yeah, I've heard Wyatt do it. He he absolutely got it.
0: Really cool. And it's that do you feel um like his playing later, like on the live in Sweden record, once he played the electric stuff and been with the birds and come back, did it do you feel like his playing changed as he got older?
1: yeah oh he's older he's uh more experience, more experiences you know he's been torn with the birds for years, all those influences that weren't there before you know so he's calling from a bigger bag of tricks he's got different sounds in his head he's heard different things and so. Absolutely. I had heard that he was a little bit afraid and that he thought he couldn't do it. Of course, he killed it. But, you know, playing with the birds and playing a couple songs on acoustic ain't the same as standing up there and doing a set with your brothers like you used to. Mm. And so he was it was a little daunting for him. But I don't know from what I hear. (laughs) It was amazing. Nothing to worry about.
0: You can really hear the guitar on that record as well. It's great, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely great.
0: Yeah, and it's in- it's interesting that thing sort of talking about with timing and with the G runs and varying it a bit. Like it's it's that I it's that and it's only really clicked with me listening to it recently. Is that playfulness of going? What if I just flip this slightly? What if I push it here? What if I? T- you end up with one melodic idea that ends up being 15 different things you can use rather than right. 15 different licks. You've got this thing. A bit, I mean, the Tony Rice used to do it. He'd start a lick on a different beat of the bar and it'd suddenly be a new lick, even though it wasn't a new bit of vocabulary. It became one because he'd go, well, what if I start here?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: It's yeah. And it's really cool to listen to. And do, do you, do you hear like Clarence, in your own playing at any time, are you influenced by more as a sort of an approach or are the things that come out in your playing that you go, Oh, that's, that's from Clarence.
1: Yeah. Not all the time. Not as often as I'd like, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not in control of it, but, uh, I don't know. There's times I can say, Oh, well, I think, and well, that's Clarence right there. And there's been a couple things. There's one that ain't released. But uh it's one thing to play his notes. That's our right. I can do that some a little bit. But that ain't anybody could do that if they practice it and, and worked at it. But just coming up with something different that you could say, oh that's directly from Clarence. That's the cool thing when something just pops out just because you've been studying it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It ain't just what you've heard before. It's something in that vein, sort of. That's the coolest. And that happens some, not as much as I'd like.
0: We'll be right back with you just after this. Collins Guitars has been a longtime supporter of the bluegrass community, from collaborating with artists to sponsoring festivals big and small. And now, by sponsoring Bluegrass Jamalong, Handmade in Austin, Texas, every Collings guitar and mandolin that leaves the shop is built from the sound-up, and the team loves seeing a Collings in the hands of players of all levels, from local musicians to world-renowned pickers. Visit collingsguitars.com for more. This episode is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, the home of Roots Music Instruction. With 65 streaming video courses for guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, dobro, bass and ukulele from some of the leading names in acoustic music, Peghead Nation has something for every picker. You'll learn the tunes and techniques you need to join in at jams and play the music you love, plus advanced techniques like improvisation, theory and ear training. Your first course is just $20 per month and you can add more for $10 a month. Sign up for any course and get your first month free with the promo code JAMALONG, or one word. Join thousands of other players, including me, who are advancing on their instruments and having more fun playing the roots music they love at pegheadnation.com. <laughs> yeah, I think that's cool, actually. You were saying there about about anybody could, could get the notes if they spend the time. It does feel like, with a lot of Clarence's stuff, that the actual notes aren't the challenge. It's all about the, the phrasing and the timing. Whereas compared yeah. to some of the Tony Rice stuff, it maybe is more the notes that are the thing. And But like Clarence it is always just the the phrasing
1: it's normal notes normal chords uh, Tony's playing it's more jazz influenced more than Clarence's I would say for sure and uh, different chords unique more jazzy colorful chords is what Tony used compared to Clarence I would say that um Yeah, Tony's stuff sounded more jazzy to me, or different, whereas Clarence could play something and make it fit, or feel like it belonged in the Bluegrass song, somehow. Like, there's Django, Lixie's did, he did, and yet when he did it, he wasn't trying to play like Django. It wasn't a swing song all of a sudden. It was just, he internalized it, and he played it, and it sounded like him. So it fit in with the licks that were before it and after it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's
1: all Clarence. Even though you can go back and say, oh, I bet he got that lick from Django, because there it is, and that came out before that, and so blah, blah, blah. Maybe so, but it's, it's still come out as Clarence the way he learned it and, I don't know for a better word, internalized it. It just came out his. And that's another thing I love. A lot of people learn a lick, and then it's just just that lick inserted into whatever else they're doing. Doesn't much sound like them. It sounds like somebody, whoever they learned it from, right?
0: Yeah, it's the same when you speak to when you Have a conversation. You speak to somebody. We're all talking in words each other understands. And for like, I, I, if I listen back to this, there would be phrases in here that I use that are absolute cliches from somewhere, or other that I just drop in because they're you know. But you, you but to. you talk, and you don't. You're not thinking about that. You're not thinking about how do I fit in this clever line that I heard somebody else say. You've just internalized stuff because you've heard it and you've read it and then you communicate You're
1: just trying to get your point across however you can and some folks have more of a vocabulary <laughs> so that helps but um i don't have a big vocab. i can s- i generally get my point across one way or another which is the whole point of it i reckon and so then i'm happy
0: yeah and like one of the other things is just you know you're talking earlier about me listening to bluegrass guitar sort of post 1980s and there's something so refreshing about hearing somebody take a break on a major key tune and they just play the major scale. And there's not like always a flat seventh, always a flat third, always a flat fifth. And it's like there's, they're there when it's appropriate and there's, that's when he wants to say. But there's so much sort of Clarence stuff that it's just the major scale really as well. It's like pretty simple some of it as well.
1: In some ways, in other ways, like the phrasing, like you mentioned, is so advanced. It's unbelievable.
0: So when you first listen to the, that sort of bunch of 33 tracks recorded at home, I think first time I heard Bury Me Beneath the Willow and just where he's choosing to place those accents and drag your ear across the bar line and pretend there isn't right. a bar line, basically, and go, like, I'm going to go where my ear's taking me. You've, I'm not counting this and I'm not sticking to this because I don't want to do that. Um, and it's just glorious. Yeah.
1: It's not written in stone. It ain't classical music. It's meant to be interpreted. So that's what he did.
0: And at the point he was learning, obviously he would have learned stuff from Roland and people he was around. Like Who would have been playing bluegrass lead guitar at that point that he would have heard?
1: Doc Watson, Norman Blake maybe early on. I'm not sure of that, I suspect it, uh, Don Reno was playing lead guitar, George Shuffler was playing lead guitar, Bill Napier was playing lead guitar, but all those guys didn't have his sense, his sense of, uh, anticipation, the way he would accent notes and anticipate them, and, uh, his sense of time was so unique, like Earl Scruggs. Earl Scruggs' sense of time is amazing. And uh, he's the same way. He had different influences, like Pete Fountain, clarinetist in New Orleans. Who knew? But there it was. And um, they each catch your ear, it's going along right where you think it's going. Earl would take almost the same break the next time, and then he'd do something different. It's like, oh, good Lord, i got to learn that. That's cool. That's not, you think it's the same thing, and you're lulled into, like, okay, that's how the song goes, and then, boom, what was that, (laughs) you know, sort of thing, and Clarence was doing that all the time. It's like, wow, oh, oh, my God, what did he do there? Oh, listen to that. (laughs) That's what you're doing the whole time, it's like. And his rhythm playing, man. You listen to him sing on that live in Sweden, and he's just anticipating notes instead of just playing simple rhythm while he's singing, and it's dead on. And it doesn't affect his singing. His singing is normal. The phrasing's right with Clarence, with Roland, or on the beat, but his playing's all around it. It's like, how in the world? Just like one part of your brain, stay on time, and the other one plays with it while you're singing. It's so fascinating. I don't know. Total reverence.
0: <laughs> I just sometimes feel like um, somebody who has like brilliant phrasing, you could almost just listen to one person play one note and get more out of it than, you know, listen to somebody play yeah. all the notes they know. Yeah. There's a bit in, um, like the Neil Young solo on I think it's Down by the River. He just plays one note for about ten bars because he's just decided that's what he's going to do because he's Neil Young, and it sounds great. And like anybody else would have done it, it would have gone like, "Oh, these have ideas," but he, Neil Young could have done that for ten minutes and he would have found something new in it each time. And yeah. it's just you you go with it because somebody means it.
1: That's the difference between an artist and somebody that's not an artist. You know, they have a vision. They have an idea. They're trying to get that idea. What can I do that makes this song better? Maybe that's a thought he had. Clarence says, what can I do to make this song more unique? How can I make put my stamp on this song? I don't know what Clarence thought. I'm guessing. But what could I do that makes this song ours instead of sounding like a Bill Monroe song? you know I don't know what the thought process was but it's cool and uh yeah the difference between an artist and somebody who isn't and the people
0: uh, are the people who's playing you hear that quality in these days
1: Stuart Duncan Stuart Duncan's amazing he's so musical Everything he does, there's no throwaway crap, there's no I'll just do this to get out of this solo. It's he's thoughtful. And he's in tune, his pitch is wonderful, his ideas are amazing. He's not afraid to play simply and just let the tone carry you. Mmm yeah. Clarence I mean Stuart Duncan's amazing, he's a fiddle player. Mm. But he's listened to Clarence, he's listened to all the thing about Stuart, he's listened to everybody, and he remembers it. And he can call up whatever he wants, whenever he wants. It's very cool to see and hear.
0: And so that, that time that you sort of spent around Clarence, mm, in seventy can't have been that much before he passed, I guess.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how how did you find out about that?
1: I was in the bathtub. I got school. I was getting ready for bed. So I was in the (laughs) bed. How's that for a lead in? But uh, dad got a phone call. I heard the phone ring and dad's talking on the phone, you know, in the living room. And they come in and told me, said, "Uh, I just got a phone call. Yeah, good for you. He goes, no, this is, I just heard that. Clarence died. I said, what? Hit by a drunk driver. Killed him. It's like, oh shit. So, get done with my bath. I'm watching TV. Not really watching it. Just sitting there. You know, just stuff's processing. I go to bed, lay down, and just start crying. (laughs) It was the weirdest thing. You know, not like, it was a weird cry too. It was just like, where you lose your breath, sort of, and you go, (gasps) Mm. (laughs) you know, sort of like that. It was strange. And, like, I couldn't figure it out because I'd just met him. But I thought, I felt like I knew him through the music because I'd heard it my whole life. So, and I knew Roland, and I'd met Clarence, and he was cool too, let me play his guitar, offered to buy me one. He was, he was great.
0: So that sort of that impact on you at that age—you sort of some things hit you at a time in your life, and they make a massive impression compared to something else that that might have lasted longer.
1: first, First big death, I think. I don't know. Both my grandparents, I think, were still around. Both sides, you know, my mother's parents and my father's parents were still around, so I, was, I believe, so I didn't really know much about death, I mean, I had pets that died, that's a whole different thing, but, uh yeah, somebody of such, who dad put so much importance in, you know, and you hang around with your parents, you learn stuff, like, if dad's a mechanic, you learn about What this tool is called, how it's used, and where to use it, when to use it. What this tool does, how to use it, what's it called. You learn all these things just from hanging out. Mm. And so, you know, I hung out with Dad. When he played music, he'd go to play with these guys. He'd play with that group, with this group. So I saw him in these different situations. I heard all the players he's playing with. Nobody was like that so I knew that Clarence was unique because nobody did it they couldn't there's no way they could so we just lost something that was unlike any we lost one (laughs) the one that there's not going to be another one up that's what you know it isn't like oh it's we lost a guitar player but John down here plays guitar we'll just get him no, it ain't the same. We lost uh, an artist. Mm. So, you know, and I knew that then.
0: And you lose the thing that, the other thing you lose is the opportunity to see how they develop as an artist. Because when somebody's so young, there's so much, like, who knows where he would have gone, what he would have done next. You know, there's relatively little recorded of him compared to a lot of people. And,
1: What would he have been, like, 79 this year, something like that? Pretty old. I can't, my mind won't even go there. (laughs) There's no way I can fathom that. And, uh, music would be so different. Bluegrass music, I mean, some of it would be the same. That's just how it is. But there'd be a branch of it that would be different, completely different. Um... Alan Mundy told me this, you can ask him about it, but he said, uh, Clarence changed bluegrass music. I was, okay, how are you coming to that conclusion? You could ask him, he could tell you better, but the G chord has an open, has a B note. You know, you fret the second fret on your fifth string, and the B string's open, you're just fretting three notes. G, G... B, and I guess that D's in there already open, but, um, and that's how bluegrass was. Clarence started muting the fifth string, playing the sixth and muting the fifth with that finger, and then fretting the second and third on the third fret, so there's no B note, it's just G's and D's, so you could use that very same finger for a major or a minor. Because it's not defining. And so, Clarence was older than Tony. Tony looked up to Clarence. They were both out in California. And I've read somewhere that Clarence always let Tony play his guitar. Because it was, I don't know, that was his idol. And Clarence looked up to him. I heard his father was sort of mean. Tony's... Why can't you play like him? It's like, well, shit. I'm nine and he's whatever. 16, maybe that has something to do with it. But uh, I'm guessing at those ages, I don't know. But one was older. Clarence was older. Tony was younger. I was talking about the G chord. And then Tony started doing it as a result of seeing Clarence do it. And that became... That allowed Tony, melodically, to play different scales because that chord's not so defining. And if it were, if he was playing a normal G chord or the rhythm was, some of those licks may not have fit as well. There would have been a clash harmonically, which sometimes is cool, but sometimes it just seems wrong to my ear. Anyway, it allowed him stuff to do things like that. But ask Alan about, if you're interested, you could ask Alan about that. It was his thought. Pretty cool thought. I don't think about stuff like that. I'm fascinated when I hear it, then it makes me think about it. You know?
0: Yeah, and I just would have presumed that's, that's been a thing for, you know, it's just because the bluegrass guitar I right hear, that's what it sounds like. You know, that's yeah. That's in there.
1: You're at a distance. You don't get to hear it with a fresh set of ears. There was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. And then, then there is. And he's the only one doing it. It's like, are you familiar with Vassar Clements? Yeah, yeah. Fiddle player. Yeah. Totally unique. His way of doing stuff, unlike anyone else. Beautiful. And before that, there was none of that that I ever heard, in that way, there's other good fiddlers, there's many, many good, great fiddlers, but none like Vassar, and so, he was the first to do it, now you listen to fiddling, oh yeah, that's that's cool, well, no, he stole that from Vassar, and that, and that, and this, and that, from that guy, but um, when Clarence first hit, there was nothing like that, nothing. And now you're hearing other people imitate him if you're lucky or not. They don't even have a clue. You know, they're busy copying someone else, which is fine, it's their choice. But so you, you go back and hear it, it may not sound so earth shattering or, or brand new because you've heard all these other people play it poorly. <laughs>
0: But it's like there's that there's that little lick that um that Clarence would play like out of a C position where you sort of pull off from the E flat on the D string.
1: Uh huh. That little yeah. bluesy
0: pull off that is just that's just everywhere. There's it's all over Tony Rice and it's all over everything since. But like you listen back yeah. and it's there. It's there. And Clarence is playing. And
1: Clarence started that. You know. And it's where now he got just, it or if he thought of it or what, but he was the first to do that that I knew of. Or maybe he got it from Earl on the banjo. There's pull offs. And- Stuff that Banjo does, I don't know. However he heard it, or where he got it, I don't know. Maybe he thought of it all himself. But the way he used it was amazing. So stuff like that. It's just kick-ass. And, you know, I go back and listen to early Jeff Beck, and it doesn't seem, it just seems ordinary to me. It's like, okay, yeah, that's okay. It's 60s guitar playing, whatever. But you read about it, and people are like, there was nothing like that. The way he did this is so cool. And listen to him do this, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I've heard a bunch of other stuff. So I'm sort of like you with bluegrass, trying to go back after hearing all this other stuff and thinking, well, that just seems basic or rudimentary, maybe a little bit. But... That's cause I don't know the later Jeff Beck stuff kicks my ass. That's fascinating. But, um, whatever, same sort of deal. I think
0: you, and yeah. I. Yeah. Like, like being able to go back and hear Jimi Hendrix without having heard the 40 years of rock guitar that came after him. Like just hearing yeah. that as a starting point would, you know, it's hard to That'll,
1: imagine. Yeah. Imagine them people, man. It's like, yeah, he was blowing people's minds. He was over in England. Everybody was coming to see him. Clapton. I'm sure Beck was there. Who other? Townsend. All these guys that, you know, you look up to and think these guys are great. They were crapping their pants over Jimi Hendrix. He did stuff nobody heard before. The way he put stuff together and just, they had to see it. They couldn't believe it. So I got to see this guy we keep hearing about him. And then just sit there, just all, you know, gobsmacked, as they might say, <laughs> being British. I don't know, but, uh, cool. Yeah. It's rare you get to see something like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you sort of listen to that live in Sweden record and you wonder how many people were in the room for that. Like it's, it's something that is passed around right. amongst bluegrass fans and guitarists now. And it's like, sort of. A well-known thing but a bunch of people were there for that and there weren't that many of them
1: maybe 50 i don't know maybe 100 maybe less and somebody recorded it so good but um mm, alan mundy fit in that band so well he fit in so well it was it was so cool Allen's a unique banjo player. His thoughts are different than everyone else's. On the banjo, the way he puts stuff together, fascinating. Kentucky Colonels had a lot of great players. Scotty Stoneman on the fiddle. It's been compared to Jimi Hendrix on the guitar. Just the way he did things. Fascinating. Artistry. And, um, I don't know, man. It's cool. Somebody to have clerics play with you know somebody good that Clarence could yeah here we go you know i don't know that's my thought
0: yeah it's that thing of like you hear one incredible musician and then they happen to have found two or three other people who think the same and are capable of keeping up with them and pushing them and like like the beatles for example like you know to get a lennon in a band is incredible to get a mccartney then to get a George Harrison, and then to get somebody like Ringo, who's totally prepared to play for the song and not get in the way until he needs to. and like People look at Ringo and go, oh, he couldn't keep up. Ringo was the perfect drummer for that band.
1: If they'd have got somebody else, it wouldn't have been near as good. I can't imagine it. Like, if they got Stuart Copeland, who I think's amazing, it would be totally different. Or who's the other? Ah, golly, I can't remember his name. I almost got it on my tongue. This guy, he played with Jeff Beck at the live at, I don't know. There's a DVD out. I got the I got the DVD. I can't remember. There's a live DVD out. Mattel Wickenfield playing bass. Vinnie Colaiuta, He's amazing. Drummer. Oh, God. Just a nuts ass difference. And it changes the time. He's all into that. He's so good. If he played with the Beatles, it would have been completely different. Well, you change anything out of four people. Any one person is going to make a drastic difference. Mm. But those drummers are very technical. And Ringo was just groove and, and feel. And this is all this is all I got to do to make it sound good. And it would be so simple. Yeah.
0: I remember cool. watching a documentary. They interviewed a load of drummers and saying, you know, kind of who's the best drummer. And they were all expecting him to say somebody like Steve Gadd or whoever. And pretty yeah. much all of them which just went, Ringo, play for the song.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yep, there's different kinds. You know, drummers aren't all the same. Everybody's always unique. I grew up, I used to think as a kid that all mandolin chops were the same. You just play on the backbeat, that's it. You just couldn't have been more wrong. But that's, you know, when you're a kid, whatever. But everybody's unique. Roland's chops different than anyone else's everybody else's is different from everybody else's it's so cool i love that it's cool to listen and and dissect and figure out try to figure out
0: i remember talking to to mike marshall about it and him saying that like everybody thinks that the beat is the beat and you're on it or you're not and he's saying the beat is like a railroad car going past but within the railroad car you can be at any point you can be right at the front of it or right at the back of it or bang in the middle
1: that's elvin jones Elvin, you know of Elvin Coltrane. Mm. Elvin was somebody asked him because his plan is so poly, you know, whatever. <laughs> How's that for communication? <laughs> um, but you know what I mean, right? He's all over yeah. it in the best way. Uh ask Elvin how what are you thinking of? He says, well, we're five piece band and or four piece whatever. And there's four or five train cars, one for each band member, we're going down the track at the same speed, but I'm on top of my train car going back and forth and doing zigzags and figure eights, but just in line with everybody else, right? Perfect, perfect analogy, and Tony's rhythm was that way. He was all over it in the best way. Um, I heard on YouTube a bootleg thing that Clarence or probably Tony or Larry Rice recorded where they're sitting around a table, I guess, their kitchen table. I bet maybe they had a drink or two. Anyway, they're just picking. Picking songs everybody knows, just common songs. And Larry Rice's and Tony Rice's rhythm were so much alike. The way they felt it, the way they... Did it so much alike and to me it felt like waves crashing on the shore. Psh, psh, psh. Here's the beat. Here's the beat. I know where it is. It boom, there it is. Here it is. Boom. Not so drastically, but that's how I was envisioning it. Envisioning it. It's how I seen it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so Clarence's was more like water. You know how it finds its own level. And didn't have to be insistent. He knew where the beat was. They knew where the beat was. He didn't have to define it. Just play. It was beautiful. It was way cool. Eye-opening for me. Anything rhythmic that I discover just seems like to be the first time ever. Um. Yeah, it's cool. Cool stuff. Just the feel. How they feel it should go how they approach the music how what they do to get the music out in the best way fascinating funny, Some drummers it? are very stiff uh ginger baker said that bottom was stiff so didn't groove didn't swing bottom's cool as hell he's a cool drummer um but according think,
0: to i don't think ginger baker liked anybody though <laughs>
1: Yeah, there's that. (laughs) But he's he's got an opinion. He's got lots, I'm sure, but fair enough. He's entitled to his opinion, but I don't know. Fascinating stuff, how people approach bluegrass is a little box. It's the littlest box ever, and it's all in there. So how do you find a place for yourself? How do you stand out in such a little box and still fit in that little box without going outside and doing some avant-garde bullshit that has nothing to do with this little box? And yet Clarence did it. He found a way to perfectly fit in that small little genre that's bluegrass and yet find something new that hadn't been done and actually do it. You know, it's one It's one thing to have an idea. It's a whole nother idea to be able to do it.
0: And I think that's what's so astonishing, listening back to, like, that Appalachian Swing stuff when he's so young, to be so, like, to have figured that, not, not just figured that out at that age, but to have figured it out and, and explored it and gone there and come back with something, like, so meaningful from that exploration. Killing it's like, it. No.
1: Yeah fascinating from a teenager so he put in a lot of practice there's no way he did that just oh i think i'll play today no he put in a lot of work and it shows and it's so cool i don't know where he would have gone if he'd he maybe still playing electric guitar maybe not as much i have no idea but i often wonder what would we be hearing from it I would have liked to heard some some original songs more that's another way to sound unlike anyone else is hmm. how do you put these chords and melodies together what chord goes with that note what are your words you know so it's another way to sound different from someone else I'm always curious. What's going on? Just anything I can glean to get a better understanding of who I want to know about. You know, hunting for clues. It's like I'm a detective. It's <laughs> funny. Know? Like,
0: I started having lessons with Brian Sutton as part of the artist, artist Works thing a couple of years ago. And yep. I was sort of going to him, like, trying to get him to teach me to sound like a bluegrass guitar player. And he's going, "You know, you don't want to do that send all these things that I would do naturally, like swing the rhythm and push things a little bit and go, it doesn't sound like go, no, those are the, those are you do more of those. Don't worry about the rest of it. Everybody else would like, just do the bits that are you and lean into those. Don't lean away from them. And just realizing that, yeah, of course there's a million people who can play blue, bluegrass guitar and sound like that. And they will do it better than I ever will, you know, and just
1: stand up and do it your way. Especially if you're unsure, you don't have anybody to play it off of to give you an idea if it's okay or not. And then it takes even more balls if they say, eh, I don't like that so much. And you think, well, goddammit, I think it's good. I'm going to do it. I'm going to continue because you think it's good. They, you've got to really be sure. <laughs> you know, we all have done something we think's good that maybe isn't, you know. I have. But I've, you know, done things I thought were good also that maybe someone else might not like as much, but i would liked and I thought was valid. So you don't want to not do something because somebody else doesn't like it. Yeah. So, yeah. But it's a fine line. And musicians are always down on themselves. Oh, I could play this better. I didn't play as well as I did the other day or blah, 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 because they missed one note. But uh, it takes a balance and knowledge he had all that man it was so cool that's vague for me to sit here and say oh yeah he was cool like well sure but but he was
0: that's sort of what it comes back to though right
1: well yeah shit he was cool hell yeah he's playing in a rock band god damn
0: and just like whatever it was when you were 11 and a half that you heard in his music that was cool like it's and it still is it's whatever he communicates something that connected with you and that's the coolest thing there is right
1: well yeah it's very cool when we find that
0: and that was my conversation with david Greer, what a joy um yeah that was a wonderful conversation to get to be part of i hope you enjoyed that um next up i'm going to talk to alan mundy um, who, as I said at the top of the show, he played banjo with Clarence and the Kentucky Colonels and the live in Sweden record. And we talk about that quite a bit, um, quite a bit of detail about that. But just, yeah, about his time with Clarence in the last year or so of his life. Um, again, great conversation. Fascinating. I learned so much. Um, I hope you do too. Here is Alan Mundy.
2: The first time I met Roland. Roland is the first one I met of the brothers. And uh, when I was a student at the University of Oklahoma... Uh, I had a classmate, Byron Berline, who was then playing with Bill Monroe. So this would be in the mid-60s sometime. And in the band with Byron playing guitar was Roland White. And uh, Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys played a show in uh, Hugo, Oklahoma. Uh, And I was in college and got a friend who had a car. We went down there to see them, uh, to see Byron, especially but to see Bill Monroe, and that's when I met Roland and played some music over the weekend or the evening there in Hugo, Oklahoma. And then they went on their way, and I went back on my way. And then in 1969, I graduated from college and went to Nashville and got a job playing with uh, Jimmy Martin, who's a bluegrass uh, one of the early bluegrass guys played in Bill Monroe's band, and uh, Roland at that time was playing with Lester Flat, uh, and uh, so uh, uh, we reconnected. And the whole two years I was in Nashville, I was connected with Roland and and uh, knew him and played with him and whatnot. And then I uh, left Nashville. 1970, the end of '71, and uh, went to uh, California to play with Country Gazette. And then I think not long after that, and I'm not sure about the exact dates on all this, but Roland left uh, Lester Flat because Clarence, his brother, was leaving the bir- the Birds, uh, and Uh, so he came to California to connect up with Clarence. And so we kind of got back together at that point. And Clarence was staying with his brother in uh, out near Lancaster or Palmdale, California, which is out in the desert from L.A. to the west. It's actually west of L.A. And uh, got invited up there to a little jam session at Clarence's father's house I think it was or maybe it was Clarence's house and his father was there I can't remember but anyway uh I had like I say I had known Roland but that was the first time I met Clarence would be I'll say 1972 uh and we played and had a good time played music together and uh, I remember Don Parmalee was there and Don Was a banjo California banjo player that had been with the Golden State Boys, and you know, sort of in the mix with uh, the whites and Tony Rice and and Chris Hillman, and you know, sort of the early bluegrass days in Southern California. And uh, uh, David Parmley was also there, Don's son, a very fine singer to this day. But anyway, that's when I met them and played music with. Roland and Clarence. So that's my first meeting with Clarence was at that time.
0: And I presume you'd heard him play sort of on records before that?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Going back, the first time I heard him was, uh, again, uh, at the University of Oklahoma, knowing Byron. And Byron had recorded uh, with the Dillards, an album with the Dillards, and had been to the Newport Folk Festival, maybe two years, but at least one year, and met Bill Monroe and sort of got into the bluegrass uh, loop somewhat, and there was a, a gentleman from California who came, was in Oklahoma because he had been, was in the Army, and there was a base in Fort Fort Sill, Lawton, Oklahoma, and he was a big bluegrass guy from California and came up to visit Byron and left a bunch of uh, reel-to-reel recordings, you know,
0: Hmm.
2: of uh, several California things, but mostly the Kentucky Colonels, and so Byron would play these for me, and I maybe even borrowed them from him and played them, but I also got... acquainted with this gentleman his name was Larry white Lawrence white was his name and uh, he played guitar and played little manlin and uh, everything but uh, he was a big Clarence White Kentucky Colonels fan and sort of he was the one that it, that I heard the music for the first time were these sound recordings and you know it was uh, I remember being uh, startled uh, by the the playing of Clarence and Roland and Billy Ray Latham on the banjo. Mm -hmm. And some of these uh, recordings had a fiddle player, uh, Scotty Stoneman, and Roger Bush was the bass player on most of these recordings. And they're all live. And so it was astounding that the music could be so... Uh, rhythmically varied, I guess, is what I would say. Is because, you know, bluegrass, traditional bluegrass, Bill Monroe, Scrugs & Scruggs, and uh, Jimmy Martin, the Osborne Brothers, you know, just that whole group, they're all pretty uh, disciplined timing-wise. And things happened, you know, at certain places. You know, it had a certain cadence to it that you followed all along. But when Clarence & Rowland played and Billy Ray, uh, also the music was kind of interwoven rhythmically rather than just always, you know, right dead on the beat, so to speak. Uh, Dante Bluegrass is not interesting rhythm-wise, but this was just in a very different way. And so it was, I remember, and I was a naive listener. You know, I had never heard anything quite as uh, uh, uh interesting i'll say rhythmically interesting in that way before them and uh, i remember thinking that maybe the first time i heard a particular tune there's one they play called bluegrass breakdown or rawhide you know they're just really fast and it's going along and it's just like where are they You know, and then all of a sudden they would end perfectly together, and I'd go, oh, wow, that is so incredible that, you know, they could hang it all together and keep it, and they all knew where they were, and it was just really cool, you know, and I was thrilled to hear that. So those are my first times in hearing uh, Clarence and Roland and the Kentucky Colonels uh, hearing them, so that was the first time I ever heard them.
0: It's really interesting you sort of talk about Bill Monroe and Jimmy Martin in particular, because I've heard you talk about playing with Jimmy and he had some very definite sort of ideas of where certain things should be placed and would almost sort of instruct you how to do certain fills or licks so they fit with his guitar playing. And
2: yes, it feels yes. like almost
0: the opposite of that.
2: It kind of is. But, you know, one thing about it is is that it's... Uh, and uh, is if you play well... And I'll say I did when I played with them. Clarence can play with you. It doesn't, you don't have to play like Clarence or Roland. And Roland could be pretty spacey too. You don't have to play uh, like them to play with them. You know, they played music right on target. You know, even though they had interesting uh, offbeat kinds of things going on, it was all right in time. You know, there was never any problems at all. You know, so if you played well and uh, Clarence could play with you and you with him. Uh, so that's, you know, the essence of it. And I always uh, remember, and I'll say this, uh, I'm not an expert at jazz or anything, but I remember reading a, a little bit by Dave Brubeck, who's a West Coast uh, jazzer. And the difference between East Coast and West Coast, and I may not be doing them justice, but this is sort of my take on it, is that the rhythm section, the drum and the bass, for the most part, played sort of Count bassy kind of approach, you know, just really strong rhythm. And you have that, and then you leave the soloists to do their magic, you know, in between and all around it. Uh, so if you played just really good straight bluegrass rhythm, Clarence could play with you without any problems at all, and make you sound a lot more interesting than you might have otherwise. You know, he created a context that was, uh, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to the to the Sweden recording, 1973 is there some things on there that I do that are just really standard bluegrass things, but they've never sounded as good because of what Clarence did behind it. I didn't do anything different. I just played the way I play. And Clarence had all this interesting contextual stuff in the background that made it much more intriguing. Uh... You know, as a listener to listening to the whole, it became an ensemble thing where bluegrass is more, and uh, it's not entirely like this, but the rhythm of the band in a normal bluegrass band and the rhythm of the soloist is basically locked in. You know, it's the same. Hmm. So that it all, it just comes out as this one sort of, uh, I'm going to call it a churn, you know, just this churn of music. And it sort of has this uh, pounding rhythm to it. Where when Clarence played, I'm playing just fairly normal stuff. But all this, it's like a kaleidoscope behind you with all these shifting colors and shapes and things. But it's all with you. So it's just really, uh, a really cool thing. And you didn't have to listen to him while you were playing. You could ignore him or you could listen. It all worked. You know, it didn't interfere one bit with what I was doing or what any other soloist would be doing. So it was a real interesting experience for sure, for sure.
0: Yeah, and that is really interesting. It's listening to the rhythm, and because on that live in Sweden record, you can hear the guitar pretty clear.
2: Yes, um, yes. You,
0: there's stuff that he's doing that maybe in a different recording setting you wouldn't notice as much. But there's so much movement within the rhythm playing that I sort of found myself questioning whether that would, how hard or easy that would be to play with. But it sounds like it was.
2: It was no easy as- problem at all. No, nothing. There was no issue at all. You just played, and he. Filled in all the little places, little holes, and whatnot. And the one I'm remembering, uh, uh, but several of them it was one of them was Blackberry Blossom, which he didn't even take a solo on. But his his accompaniment was so amazing, you know. It's uh, it just made it sound better than I'd ever heard it sound, you know, because of what he put in. And especially on the B part, where it goes to E minor. And just his sort of rumblings on the bass strings and his take on the rhythm. And it was always right on, very cool, and sort of uh, sparkling in a way. And in a sense, uh, he would do not a role with – I'm not talking about a role now. You know, you asked about the possibility of him using his pick and fingers, and was that ever an issue – which it wasn't, but uh, he could, banjo playing is syncopated just by the mechanics of the the roll. But he was syncopating things, just the notes. He wasn't using a roll or with his pick, he just sort of bounced around and picked out, in his mind, the most interesting spots. And I'll mention one thing that Roland mentioned to me uh, was that early on there were just the three brothers, Clarence and Roland and Eric, and they used their sister, but in bluegrass, there was just the three of them. And so that they didn't have a banjo so that Clarence would play more to kind of fill in, uh, the banjo sensibility about it. And you can kind of hear that in his playing is that he filled in a lot of the gaps that the banjo you know many people just leave the banjo to do but he would jump in there and do r- just really interesting surprising things you know to uh sort of elevate the music with his sensibility you know which is really great you know he's a really fantastic player yeah.
0: and you can hear it sometimes when he's using a sort of uh like the equivalent of a roll approach to syncopate things sometimes, that he's just choosing how long to make. And it, it's almost like he's intentionally dragging your ear away from the beat enough to confuse you enough so that when he drops you back on it, you go, ah, oh, it's there.
2: And it's there that it thing of yeah.
0: taking you away far enough to then bring you back.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, no, he was brilliant in that way, in those ways. You know, and it's, and uh, I'm not as familiar with his electric guitar playing, but I'm sure he did a lot of that in that world, too, you know, and uh I'm sure he's admired in that world for similar things, you know, for just his sense of the timing of placement of notes and whatnot, you know, and mm. it was just always, and I'm going to say, uh, and I don't mean, uh, what do I want to, I'll just say it, he had a sense of humor about his playing, I thought, not in a joke telling or anything, but just Oh, this will be neat, you know, and do it and kind of with a smile about putting a note in at uh, odds or what might seem an odd place or or uh, uh, sort of jumping the beat a little bit, but not, you know, it's not. And he doesn't rush or drag or anything or get off time or anything, but he just kind of changes things ever so slightly as he goes along, but he always either catches up or. Corrects as he goes along he just has a great sense of timing and where to start and where to end certain things you know he was just really good
0: and it's that it's the same sense of humor that's that's sort of what strikes me about a lot of that playing it feels playful like he's got the source material and he's just playing around with it to see what what he can do with it what else he can make out of it and where it can go
2: Right, right. Well, that's part of the sense of humor about it. Playful is a good, a better word, I think. Uh, But yeah, yeah, he was really extra special like that. So,
0: I was going to ask you about that because I've I've heard you talk about um, about your kind of approach to improvisation and it having some roots in the kind of Texas fiddle style where you take the melody and you gradually embellish and play with it and introduce new things and it and a lot of what Clarence does the actual elements of the tune are all there but he's just placing them in different place and it's not this what we've become used to in recent decades a much more lick based approach to improvisation it's much more grounded in the tune
2: right right exactly exactly and uh i agree i agree he always had a and i always use the image of uh the melody is this thread You know, and all the way through his solo, what pulls Clarence through his solo is this thread of the melody. You know, he's never far away, you know, and uh, so you never sort of have a sense of, uh, oh, this is just the same licks, but now in a new tune. Although there are, he did have his licks, and he did have his way of doing things that show up In other places, we all do. I mean, that's part of the deal. But uh, for him, it was, to me, I never talked to him about it, but he must have had, you know, the melody streaming in his head as he's playing, as many people do. But, uh, and the other thing, though, is that what we're left with is what guitar playing is now after he died. So he never had a chance to uh I'll say develop or you know do more Mm. than what he was at the time that's all we know and that's all available to us so we really don't know what he might have developed into you know and uh, you know I guess uh, immediately after Clarence was Tony Rice and he had a although he had Some things, sensibility of Clarence's, he got off into a yet another direction that uh, somebody else can talk about. I don't know, but it was different than what Clarence was doing, which is absolutely as it should be. Uh, so Clarence, but Clarence never had a chance to hear Tony and be influenced by Tony, although they played together, but it was very, very early on for Tony and very late. For Clarence, mm. you know, so yeah, and
0: you you hear that all the time in sort of whether it's in music or sport or whatever. The two people who are sort of at the peak of their powers at the same time sort of elevate each other. bit one, it would have been amazing to see Tony and Clarence sort of through the seventies into the eighties and see, you know, where they would have just watched them develop in parallel, and that would have been fascinating.
2: Yes, yes, yes. I mean, uh, yes, I agree. I agree. And I was going
0: to ask you about that live in Sweden recording and sort of, it's become such a, like, you know, 50 years later, we're still talking about it and it's become such an iconic recording to, to so many people. Um, and I was just going to ask you how that came about, how the, was was it always planned to be a recording or was it a sort of a taping that surfaced later?
2: Yeah, I don't think it was in, in a sense. I mean, the local people, uh, and I don't know the gentleman's name who re- actually recorded it. I'm sure it's on the, says on the recording is uh was probably just recording it as a fan. You know, I've Clarence, you know, in Sweden in 1973, there hadn't been that many sort of live bluegrass bands come through, so they wanted to somebody wanted to record it and uh because they loved Clarence's playing and Roland's and uh the idea of the Kentucky Cardinals. Uh, so somebody recorded it, and I don't think it was just after Clarence had died that, you know, maybe Roland had gotten a cassette copy of it and, uh, worked and arranged for first Rounder Records to release a few of the cuts. And then later, uh, Roland himself, he and Diane, uh, did it themselves but I don't think it was meant to be a recording. And uh, you can hear, uh, I'm going to call it, say it was a coffee maker. You know, some people think it's uh, feedback or something, but I think it's an electric coffee maker that interfered. You know, every once in a while you hear this electronic sound. Uh, but uh, another interesting thing is uh, on that, uh why i was why I was there uh they went on that tour with herb Peterson as the banjo player, and there is a recording of herb in the group of the kentucky colonels and uh, herb was a, is a great great player and uh he did what I couldn't do, which is the singing herb was a really i mean obviously his career has Uh, been very uh, prominent as a vocalist but he's a very fine banjo player too so he had been on the first part of the tour but he left to go with uh, Johnny Rivers I believe it was who was also in Europe touring at the same time and lured Herb away and that's when I got the call because I had just been to Europe with the Country Gazette we had just basically come back. Maybe we were there in January and February uh, and gotten back and got a call uh, also on the tour with Roland and Clarence and Eric and Herb was uh, Eddie Tickner who was Clarence's manager and then Jim Dixon who was a producer. And Jim had produced all, at that point, maybe the, the two three Country Gazette albums, I can't remember, maybe just two, two Country Gazette albums at that point. But he had produced The Dillards and uh, The Hillman with Chris Hillman and uh, The Greenbrier Boys, but he had done some other bluegrass, and he was also over there traveling, and Eddie is the one that called me, Eddie Tickner, the manager, called me and wanted to know if I was available and would come over and play. And I think that came from probably Roland, through Roland, knowing Roland. And the one time or two times that I met Clarence and played with him, and he probably said, yeah, that'd be fine. And uh so I went over uh and finished out the tour, and we did that recording. I don't know if it was the last thing we did or the last thing we did in Europe before we went to England and did a few shows in England. So... Uh, that's how I wound up being on it. Yes. And also I should mention Eddie Tickner was our manager, Country Gazette, and Jim Dixon was our producer. So they would have, I would think, have mentioned my name in replacing Herb. So that's how I got there.
0: Do you remember much about the show in Sweden? I mean, sort of listening back, it's become such an iconic recording that it it's hard to imagine just sort of how many people were there, what, what the setting was, you know.
2: Yeah, it was a club, uh, the Mozabaki, and the guy was a big, uh, uh, the owner, and I think his picture is somewhere in the album, in one of those pictures. He may be there. He's sort of a shortish, red-haired guy, and he's maybe serving beer or something. Uh, But he was a big fan of Eartha Kitt, uh, who was a pop jazz singer, of the, I'll say the 40s and 50s. I really don't know her career all that much. I'm aware of her, but uh, I just remember the menus were sort of had a cat-like uh, uh, look to them, you know, cat mm-hmm. shape with the ears and whatnot. Because, it, as I say, he was a big a kit. And so get, k- kitty uh, cat kind of thing. So there was that, and it was full However many it holds, and I'd say under a hundred, but it, I really can't remember. But it would be under a hundred. Very responsive, and especially to Clarence. You know, Clarence was the uh, main attraction. I think. Uh, well, I don't think it. I know it. You know, it. Uh, you know, and it was his first venture outside of the birds, and he chose to do it as a bluegrass. Kind of thing. I don't think he was going to, uh, go off and be a bluegrass guy. You know, I think he was going to be still stay in sort of the country rock, uh, LA country rockish kind of, of context, but with a, maybe a little more bluegrass than some of the others because of his experience. And when we got uh, well, let me talk about the the thing. And there were, I don't remember any stage lights. It was just all the lights were on. You could see the audience. Uh, and they were just sitting at tables. And, <clears throat> and uh, what else do I remember? It's not a real, real big place. And the stage was not very high. Uh, you didn't, I remember that. And. Uh, you know, playing acoustically, we just had microphones. I don't remember there being even a great monitor system. I'm sure there probably was, but I remember, uh, trying to be careful not to be, you know, the banjo can sometimes be a little too loud. Uh, and I thought about that and tried not to be too loud. And I, I noticed on the recordings, and they purposefully got Clarence up, which is was a great, great thing they did, that the banjo is pretty far back, which is perfectly fine. And uh but it certainly was loud enough in the solos, so uh it was pretty well mixed, I think. And uh I should also mention Roland is a really fantastic musician, you know. And he being the older brother, I think you know, anything that's bluegrass that Clarence does, I think ultimately is funneled through Clarence, I mean, Roland's uh, idea of what it should be, and so I think uh, Roland was a big influence on both Clarence and Eric, and uh, uh, and on me, you know, I played with him for many years, and he's a fantastic musician, and his thing was all like many bluegrass. is always the timing. You know, right. the timing has to be right. And that's with Clarence. You know, if the timing wasn't right, Clarence couldn't do what he did. You know, it had to be good. And Roland made sure that it was, it worked. And Eric was a great, great bass player. He's kind of hard to hear on the recording, but he's a very, very good bass player and a good feel to his music making. So, uh, I remember that, and it was just a, uh, I could hear a bit bit better. Some of the other venues we played were a little bigger halls, you know, that were a little hard to hear, but uh, this was a better place, and you could hear more acoustically uh, than through electronic of the monitors. I could hear... Roland especially well because he was right next to me and then Eric was behind us and then Clarence was on the other side of uh, Roland. So it was just real good music making. It's wonderful to play with those guys. And for me, you know, Clarence and Roland and Eric had played together from childhood. And so I was brought in, you know, and only played really in a sense that month or so or a few weeks that we, I don't even remember how much time we were those few weeks we played together. But it was no problem at all. They were such a strong unit. Uh, And I describe it many times as like you're riding your bicycle with the wind at your back. So you're playing with this incredible rhythm section that the only place to play is with them. Mm. And uh, so it was a real treat in that sense to fit it in there and get it really sounding as good as I could at the time, for sure. So I really enjoyed it. And it was not a, you know, and some people every once in a while will comment, wow, it sounds like you've been playing with them forever. Well, if you play music in time, you can play with lots and lots of people because that's the thing that makes it, Go together is the timing, and Clarence and Roland and Eric had their. Although it was very, you know, very, uh, uh, It was varied. uh, You know, aspects Mm. of timing. It was all of a of a unit of time that was really fun and easy to play with. So I didn't have any problem at all playing with them at all
0: and it's a great recording and you know it's so amazing to think that somebody somebody recorded that and we're still listening to it and talking about it 50 years later
2: i know i know it's a really really fortunate and especially knowing what happened to roll or to clarence after that you know that uh that was we did go into the studio and record some things before he died obviously uh four or five tunes that I was on. He may have done a few others that I wasn't involved in, but then that was the last. That was it. We did a tour. Uh, I don't think it's very well known, but we did a tour with, and I can hardly even name all the people. It it was uh, Country Gazette, which is Byron and me and uh, Roger Bush, Kenny Wertz. Then it was the Kentucky Colonels, Uh, Roland, Clarence, and Eric with Herb Peterson, and then uh, Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harris, Uh, then a sort of a Burrito Brothers thing with Sneaky Pete and Rick Roberts, and uh, Chris Etheridge, who's the original bass player with the Burrito Brothers, and I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. But it was called the Hot Burrito Review, and we did two shows. And it would be basically, you know, I think the Bluegrass started it, and maybe Country Gazette would do three or four tunes, and then Clarence and the Kentucky Colonels, then it would ship to the Electric Band, and then it would be sort of a burritos band with Clarence and Sneaky Pete and Chris Etheridge and and Gene Parsons on drums. That's who I forgot. Gene Parsons on drums. They would do some tunes as sort of the burrito thing. And then Graham and Emmy Lou would come out and do some numbers. And and then Herb would join. Uh, you know, so it was like
0: yeah, uh, California
2: country rock. Yeah. And it was it was uh, I think uh had the opportunity to do well as a you know as a touring show, the Hot Breeder Review, and we did two shows, one in Philadelphia uh, and at a theater and one at an outdoor place, and I remember the name of it, it was called McGonagall's by the Sea, and it was an outdoor park, and uh, so, and then it was after that, that Graham died And then Clarence not long after that, you know, so they both died. Uh, Let me back up. Clarence died first. And uh, because I remember at the funeral uh, that Graham and Chris Hillman initiated the singing of Farther Along, uh, you know, at his graveside. And then not long after that, Graham died. And so that was the end of that whole Saying which was too bad but that's the way the world is
0: yeah Yeah, and so much of like that music that you just mentioned on that one that one show has gone on to be like hugely influential just you know the influence of california country rock and california bluegrass on so much of what's come since and to think that clarence had an innovative like role in both the acoustic and the electric side of that. He was equally as innovative and groundbreaking in his electric work as he was in his flat Oh,
2: yeah, 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 no, he was a, a real uh, force in music for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I was really fortunate. I only, like I say, I only knew him for, if it was even a year, you know, 72 and then he died in 73, so... Probably wasn't even a year, but he was a nice guy and very friendly. And can I tell you just a quick funny story is uh, when we got to London and we went to our hotel rooms. And I can't remember. It may have been in London is where I caught. No, I went to Amsterdam. But anyway, in London, got there and we were given our keys to our rooms. And I go up and open the door to my room or the one I had the key for. And I go in there, and, man, it's a nice big room with a balcony and uh, a nice bathroom area. And I go, boy, you go with Clarence White, you go first class. Well, there wasn't a minute. There's a knock at the door. And I go to the door, and it's Clarence. And he says, I think you got my room. (laughs) So we trade keys, and I go down to the room I had. And I couldn't hardly get the door open for the bed (laughs) Being in the way, and there was about I can't do it, you know, this much room between the uh, wall and, and then the bed over here. So I just scooted along, and I thought, oh well, so much was for that going first class.
0: Well, great story, um, and what a fascinating interview with uh, just yeah, very cool guy. Um, that's it for part one. Part two next week. Um, do stay tuned for that. I can't tell you like how meaningful these conversations are to get to have I enjoy all interviews I do but there's something really special about these celebrations um, of individuals and different records and just getting to dive in a bit more deeply there's something something about talking to a musician about another musician rather than themselves that I find so interesting and often people really open up in a way they might not do if they're talking about their own music. And I've experienced that with some of the previous interviews and certainly with these two. Um, And they've, yeah, just delightful. Uh, Stick around next week. I'll have part two for you, some more great chat about Clarence with some people that I'm sure you know and love. Um, Thanks for listening. I appreciate it when you get to the end of these long episodes because, you know, they're they're not your typical hour long. There's a bit more to them. So I hope you've enjoyed it and got something from this. Uh, I'll see you next time. Have a great week and happy picking